You found a podcast where you'll hear the truth, and we will praise Jesus' name. We stand for the Bible and won't back down from it, although it don't bring much fame. Some folks will like it, some will try to deny it, but God's Word will always stand true. It's been tried in the fire. Hello, friends and faithful listeners. It's time for the Pod King Bible Study. I'm your co-host, Donald King, and I'm joined by the host of this study, Brother Donnie King. On this podcast, we study the Bible from its original languages so we can understand the Word of God more clearly. We look at current events and news in light of Scripture, and we also examine some of the things going on within our culture from a biblical perspective. This is Friday. February the 3rd, special edition number 67, Trinity or Oneness. In our last study, we found out quickly that the 11th chapter of Revelation didn't disappoint us. It is also filled with many interesting and even odd things. We saw a huge angel give John a measuring reed to measure the temple and the people within it. We saw where there are two witnesses sent to earth, and then we had a lengthy discussion of who they might be. We looked at several things that seemed to point to the identity of these two witnesses. Do you know who they are? In today's episode, we grapple with a subject that has been the main topic of thousands of discussions. We answer a question sent to us concerning the difference between the Trinity and the oneness beliefs. We go over numerous scriptures while covering a lot of ground in order to present a clear biblical response. Is there much of a difference between these two beliefs? Does it really matter what one believes concerning this? Are the oneness people guilty of elevating Jesus too much? Is the term Trinity biblically correct? If this sounds like something you're interested in, go ahead and start listening. We have some deep waters to swim in today. Now for the teaching of God's Word and the lesson for today, I'll turn it to the host of our podcast, Brother Donnie King. Thank you for tuning in today. We're looking forward to another good study, and we think that this is one that should be able to gain everybody's mind to listen to. This episode should be pretty interesting. (laughs) Well, I figure it will. There's a lot to go over between these two belief systems, and I know we're not going to be able to cover it all, but we want to give a pretty good knock on it, if that's all right. This has been a huge topic that has been the focus of many people throughout the past 120 years, especially. Well, how do we keep getting dragged into these kind of discussions? Well, we asked for people to send us their questions, and I guess they're doing that. By the way, we received emails from three or four different people asking for us to tackle this topic. Well, that is correct. And this question was, could you explain the difference between the Trinity and Oneness doctrines? Well, let's get started. Okay. One of the most debated topics among Pentecostal holiness groups ever since the Azusa Street Revival has been whether God is one or if he's three. The Trinity, or Godhead, is considered as one of the most controversial and confusing topics known to most Christians. Yeah, but let me put it this way. The confusion comes from a lack of knowledge most of the times, but the controversy comes from the very pits of hell. Well, the oneness belief is a direct attack on the unity of Trinity. It is. Some people believe that since the word Trinity does not appear in the Bible, it's a false teaching and it can't be proved by Scripture. Therefore, it isn't in our KJVs. I find that a very interesting argument myself, especially considering most of the groups that use this argument believe in the rapture of the church, and that word's not found in the KJV either. 
Are you opposed to the word Trinity? No, I'm not really opposed to it, but I do usually refer to the Trinity by its biblical name to avoid confusion, and that is the Godhead. And let me give you three scriptures where we have the word Godhead in it in our Bibles. Acts 17, 29, for as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone or graven by art in man's device. Romans 1 and 20, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even by his eternal power in Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Colossians 2 and 9, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. What are some verses that you would use to show proof of the Trinity or Godhead? Okay, if I was to be debating with someone about the Godhead, the Trinity, against oneness, against Jesus' name only, whatever you want to refer to that other belief system as, I got some go-to verses, and I'm going to share them with you. I'm going to tell you where they're found and then read them to you. Matthew 28 and 19 is one of my favorites. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Acts 10 and 38. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. Notice that God, who is the Father, anointed Jesus of Nazareth, the second member of the Godhead, with the Holy Ghost. There's all three in one verse. 2 Corinthians 13 and 14, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen. If that's the same person, why is he listed three times? That's right. 2 Thessalonians 2 and 13, but we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the spirit and the belief of truth whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Once again, we have the Father separated from the Spirit and the Spirit separated from the Son. Here we have Titus 3, verses 4 through 6. But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Verse 4 has God. Verse 5 has the Holy Ghost. Verse 6 has Jesus Christ. So we have all of them differentiated again. Hebrews 9 and 14 is a powerful one. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Here we have Christ, who offered his life through the spirit unto God. Now, how can all three of that be the same person? 1 Peter 1 and 2. Elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Here we have God the Father, specified, the Spirit, and then Jesus Christ, all of them in one verse again. 1 John chapter 5, verses 6-7. through 7. This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. Now, we use this verse, and the Jesus name only people use it, because it says they are one, and they take it to mean that it's just one person. We believe it's one God manifest in three persons. Jude 1 and 21, last verse I'm going to use for a little while. Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. 
Why did I use that? Because verse 20 also says, building up yourselves in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's all three differentiated again from one another, not the same person, not three different manifestations, but here we have three separate persons. So what is the difference between those who believe Trinity and those who believe oneness? There are two major deviations from the orthodox understanding of the Trinity or the Godhead. One of them is called dynamic monarchianism. The second one is called modalistic monarchianism, and it's also simply known as just modalism. Dynamic monarchianism teaches that the Father alone is God, excluding the Son and the Spirit. They are just helpers with him. In modalism, which is what the Jesus name only or the oneness people are, they believe the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are the same person, and there's no distinguishing between them as individual persons within a triune Godhead. They believe that it's all just simply the one acting as three. Those who believe this say that there's three modes of being in which the one divine person exists. They're merely roles that God plays. First, he acts as the Father. And then in the incarnation, he assumed the role of the son. And now in the church age, he's playing the part of the spirit. Now, I want to tell you that the problem with both of these views in dynamic monarchianism and modalistic monarchianism is that both of these beliefs render salvation completely impossible. You may be wondering how. Dynamic monarchianism insists that the son and the spirit are not truly divine. If this is really so, then they're in no position to give the salvation that we so desperately need for only God can save. If the son is not divine, if he is not deity wrapped in humanity, what makes his dying on the cross any different than some other random person dying on the cross? He's just a man like we are. It's because of who he is that makes the power of the cross so wonderful. Likewise, if modalism is true and there's no distinction among the divine persons, then the son's life, his death, and his resurrection are basically a farce, and they leave us in our sins. Why do you say it's nothing more than a farce? If there really isn't a son, and it was in reality the father acting as the son, why go through all the character roles? If God is now today in the church age acting as the Holy Ghost, We're no longer united to the God who created the whole world because God has put off his act of being the father. And so, therefore, we're not connected to the son because God has put off his act of being the son. Now he is the Holy Ghost. And so there's no salvation if there's no son. True biblical Christianity is held to the teaching of Scripture, confessing that there is one God who exists eternally in three persons. That's right. And mainstream Christianity is held to the belief of the Trinity, the Godhead, however you want to term it, as being orthodox. And anything that deviates from this is called unorthodox, even heresy. Scripture affirms both the unity and the plurality of the triune God. He exists eternally as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. He's not taking on the form of one at one time and then he changes to the other. There's three separate persons. Scripture declares that each of the three persons in the Trinity are fully and equally God. That's right. In Romans 1 and 7 and in 1 Peter 1 and 2, we find the common title, God the Father. In several places, Jesus identifies God as his Father. Matthew eleven twenty seven, John 5 and 20. Like the Father, the Son is also identified as God in Scripture. Yes, he is. 
John begins his gospel account by unequivocally declaring, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's John 1 and 1. In Colossians 2 and 9, Paul contends that Christ is the fullness of the Godhead. He's deity. All deity is wrapped up in his humanity, and it dwells bodily. The writer of Hebrews quotes Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7, and applies its use of the title God to the Son in Hebrews 1 and 8 is forever and ever a scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. As the Father and Son are both proclaimed to be fully God, so too is the Spirit. That's right. If you want to go to Acts chapter 5, look at verses 3 and 4. Peter explicitly calls the Holy Ghost God. He asked Ananias, why did he lie to the Holy Ghost? And then he rewords it and restates it again in the next verse and says, you didn't lie unto men, but you lied unto God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul says that the believer's body is the temple of God. But then he goes on to speak of how the Holy Ghost is who dwells in that temple. He's saying the same thing. It's the temple of God. It's the temple of the Holy Ghost. It's the same thing in essence. Paul once again mentions the Christian's body as being a temple, but this time he says our body is the temple of the Holy Ghost in 1 Corinthians 6 and 19. In addition to describing that each of the persons in the Trinity is fully divine, Scripture teaches the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost are one God. Yes, they are. They are distinct persons not to be confused with one another. One way to see the plurality of the Trinity is by the simultaneous appearance of all three members at the baptism of Christ. As the Son emerges from the water, the Spirit descends upon him, and then the Father speaks from heaven. If modalism is true, if the oneness belief is true, the Father is playing the role of the Son, and he's playing the role of the Holy Ghost, and he's playing the role of the Father in heaven, how did he pull off acting out all three at the same time? That's right. I believe that this proves one God, like Deuteronomy 6 and 4 tells us, Hero Israel, the Lord thy God is one Lord, but he exists eternally as three distinct persons in the triune Godhead that we know as the Trinity. So we have God, the Father, Jesus, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, who is the Spirit. That's correct. We also must understand that the very first few verses of the Bible, when we read it in the original Hebrew language, describes God as more than one. The Hebrew word for God in Genesis 1 is Elohim, which is a plural word. I'm sure everyone knows that if something is pluralized, it means there's more than one. That's right. When God began to make man, he said, let us make man in our image. That's in Genesis 1 and 26 and in 3 and 22. Let me read you those. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. Genesis 3 and 22. And the Lord God said, behold, the man is become as one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. He definitely wasn't speaking to the angels, for man is made a little lower than the angels, according to Psalms 8 and 5 and Hebrews 2 and 7 through 9. When God chose to reveal himself to us, he chose to let us know he's more than just one. Amen. Throughout the Bible, we see God manifested in many ways, but we also see the Godhead working together. God creates the heavens and the earth. The Spirit moves upon the face of the deep. The Word of God goes forth and ministers. Let me ask you a question. Do you know why the angels cried out in Isaiah 6 and 1 through 8, Holy, holy, holy. They were praising our great triune God. 
holy to the Father, holy to the Son, holy to the Spirit. For some people, Deuteronomy 6 and 4 through 8 makes it hard for them to digest the concept of the Trinity. Why is that? They feel that when it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, that leaves no possibility for the Trinity. Yeah. What is hard for some people to grasp is that God is one God, but God is three distinct persons all at the same time. That's more than our minds can truly comprehend at times. Each person is separate yet distinct from the others, but all are divine as being God. Each person of the Godhead is co-equal, for together they're God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. If one of them were to be no more, the Trinity as we know it, the Godhead as we know it, would cease to be. In other words, if the Son is not for real, God is not God. If the Holy Ghost is not an actual person, then God is not God as the Bible teaches. The doctrine of the Trinity is the fullest explanation of the identity of God. The Bible clearly teaches that there's only one God. That's true, and we see this in the Old Testament and in the New. You see it in Deuteronomy 6 and 4, and we see it also in James 2 and 19. The Bible just as clearly teaches that all three members of the Trinity is God. Now, hear me out. There is not three gods in heaven, but three co-equal, co-eternal beings who exist together in the community of the Trinity, comprising one God. Each of them performs things only God can do. Amen. And all three receive worship, which is due to God alone. These three persons are not three detachable parts of God, nor are they different faces that God wears at different times. The Bible clearly teaches that the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost are not identical. No, they're not. They're persons, That's and right. they interact with one another and with us in distinct ways. Because each person of the Trinity is fully God, they share the same purpose and activity. The ways they think and the ways that they act are distinctive to each other, but yet they think in harmony because they all agree together. Jesus told his disciples that he was God's unique or only son and that he was sent from the Father to accomplish their shared mission of salvation. He promised that after his departure, he would send his disciples the Holy Ghost who would live in them as the Father and Son already does. We believe that the Father sent his Son to save us, and he sent his Spirit to keep us. We believe that the Son, not the Father, not the Holy Ghost, became a man, right. suffered, died, and rose again for our salvation. When we pray, we usually address our prayers to the Father, but we pray to the Son and by the Holy Ghost. Why do we do things this way? Well, for one, we're told to do it this way in the Bible, but also because this way our worship is directed to all three persons and not only to one. The doctrine of the Trinity distinguishes Christianity from other faiths like Judaism and Islam, which are monotheistic. That means they believe there's only one being to worship. Jews and Muslims do not accept Jesus Christ as God's son, nor do they think that the spirit is a person in his own right. Within the church world, there's a few Unitarian groups that reject the doctrine of the Trinity. The Oneness Apostolic Churches and the Unitarian Universalists are the two most widely known. We believe in the unity of the Godhead, absolutely, but we also believe it much differently than these two groups do. The Trinity exists eternally as one God in three persons. Their unity is not merely in will or in action but in substance and in essence. The unity of the Godhead is a doctrine that emerges from scriptures. 
This means all three are always in total agreement, complete harmony, and perfect unity. Yes, they are. In the Old Testament, we have the affirmation known as the Shema in Deuteronomy 6 and 4 that I've alluded to several times. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. This same belief is taught throughout the New Testament as well. Let me read you a few verses that prove this. 1 Corinthians 8, verses 4 through 6. As concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is none other God but one. For though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as there be gods many and lords many, but to us there is but one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. Galatians 3 and 20. Now a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. 1 Timothy 2 and 5, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. James 2 and 19, thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. The whole Bible testifies that there is one God, all the while insisting that this one God subsists eternally in three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. This unity is manifested in the words and the works of the Son, which are the same words and works that the Father does. If you don't believe that, look up John chapter 5, verse 17. Go to John 8, 28, 29. Go to John 14, verses 10 and 11. The same thing, though, is said of the Spirit as well, who speaks the truth that he hears from the Father, according to John 16 and 13, just as the Son does whatever he sees the Father doing, as John 5 and 19 says. Scripture speaks of all three persons of the Trinity being involved in creation. If you don't believe that, look up Genesis 1 and 1 through 3, Ephesians 3 and 9, John 1 and 3, Job 33 and 4. All three members of the Godhead are seen in the incarnation. Luke 1 and 35, John 1 and 14. They're all seen in the resurrection of Christ. Galatians 1 and 1, John 10 and 17 and 18, Romans 8 and 11. They are all seen in the sanctification of the believers in 1 Thessalonians 5 and 23, Hebrews 13 and 12, 1 Peter 1 and 2. Scripture speaks of their plurality, but is still insistent on their unity, as we already read earlier in 2 Corinthians 13 and 14. A good example of this is found in the Great Commission in Matthew 28 and 19. Yeah, as we saw earlier, there's the three plural names, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, all using the same verse. But I want you to please take notice of the and of phrases, which denotes another person being mentioned in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. That means that these are separate persons. Scripture also speaks of the unity of believers, stating that we as a church body are made up of different members. But we are to be one when it comes to belief. We're to be one when it comes to worship. And we're to be as one when it comes to purpose. The reason behind this is that we are to show forth the unity of the Trinity. Amen. And we see this also in several places in the Bible. I'll give you a few examples. Go to John 17, read verses 11 through 23. Go to Ephesians chapter 4, read verses 3 through 5. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. You can read the whole chapter there. It'd be very beneficial. But verses 12 and 13 are the ones I'm primarily speaking of. Can you give us some kind of layout of each member and their work? I'll do that. God the Father is distinct in that he dwells in the highest heaven, and he sovereignly rules over the universe, overseeing everything. God the Father is the first person of the Trinity. 
when referring to the Father, this in no way entails superiority or priority. He is the dominant one, the number one. It just means he is first in order. The Father is first only in the order process, right? That is correct. The Father must be understood as the one who the Son comes from. The Father is the one the Holy Ghost emanates from. God the Father is the principle and origin of unity within the Godhead as both the Son and the Holy Ghost proceed from him. The Father is known as a person of the Godhead who does not proceed from another. That is correct. Jesus and the Holy Ghost originate from the Father who has no origin. In the divine missions that are done, Jesus and the Holy Ghost are sent by the Father, and the Father is never sent. Thus, the Father creates the world and saves his people through his Son and through his Spirit. There would be no access to the Father except the Father sent the Holy Ghost to draw sinners to the Son, who is the only way to the Father. Yes, well put. The Son and the Spirit were sent to deliver the world from sin. Through Jesus and the Holy Ghost, we can know the Father. This is why we must say that God the Father is the first cause or the first source. Jesus is the Son. He was God manifest in the flesh, according to 1 Timothy 3 and 16. He came to earth as much man as any man, but as much God as his Father. Jesus, the Son, is the second divine person of the Trinity, known as the Word of God. He is the perfect image of the Father. He is one with the Father, but he is not the Father. Jesus is the Son in relation to the Father, and that's because he is generated or begotten of the Father. He is originated by birth from the Father and shares the absolute and unitary divine nature, according to Colossians 1 and 15 and John 3, 16. The Son is born of the Father, and it is that which distinguishes them as Father and Son. The Son is the Word of God, the Logos. And this name provides us with understanding of who the Son is and his place in the Godhead, or Trinity. The Word of God originated from the Father, shares his eminence with the Father, and is equal with the Father, and he is the expression of God's perfection. The Word is the image of the Father, and an image is not just a similarity, but a specific likeness. The Son of God is the Word through whom all creation was made. He is the image of divine perfection who came into being. He is the fullest revelation that we have of God, and we see that clearly in the man Christ Jesus. The Son is the only way of access to the Father. The Son is from whom the Holy Ghost proceeds, for Jesus gave the Holy Ghost to the church. The Father was not created. He is eternal, for he has always been. The Son was begotten of the Father, and so he's not created either, showing that he also is eternal from everlasting to everlasting. The Holy Ghost, the Spirit of God, possesses all the divine characteristics, yet he's separate and distinct from the Father and the Son. The Holy Ghost is the third member of the Godhead. The writers of the New Testament and the early church recognized the Holy Ghost as deity and as the third person in the Godhead. There's numerous texts in the New Testament, as well as several mentions in the Old Testament that speaks of his deity because he did only what God can do. The Spirit enables us to confess the identity of Jesus Christ and to worship Him. 1 Corinthians 12 and 3, Ephesians 2 and 18 are good sources to look at. He is the source of all spiritual life. If you want a reference for that, go to Galatians 5 and 25, Galatians 6 and 8, Ephesians 1 and 13 through 14. He gives believers insight into the depths of God according to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. He transforms believers into the image of Christ and makes them the temple of God, according to 2 Corinthians 3 and 18 and 1 Corinthians 3 and 16. He is also described as eternal and omnipresent, Hebrews 9 and 14, Psalms 139 and 7. 
The Spirit is also called God in Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. As a person, he can be grieved, vexed, and lied into. Isaiah 63 and 10, Ephesians 4 and 30, Acts 5 and 3 and 4. He leads believers according to Galatians 5 and 17. Jesus is our mediator between man and God. Hence, the Spirit has been sent in the place of Jesus as another comforter or an advocate to be with us, according to John 14 and 16. Is there anything else you'd like to share with us on this topic? Well, there is. I've got a little bit more I want to say, and I know we may go a little bit longer on this episode than we normally do, but the Bible teaches us that it's impossible for God to lie, it's impossible for God to sin, and it's impossible for God to fail. Now, I want to break it down. This means that the Father cannot lie, sin, or fail. But that also means that neither can the Son lie, sin, or fail. The Holy Ghost can't lie, sin, or fail. To believe that any of these three can lie means that God can lie. To believe that either of the three could sin means that God could sin. To believe that either of the three could fail means God could fail. That's right, because it takes the three to be God. And if either of the three can do those things, God can do those things. The good news of the gospel tells us that God cannot and will not lie to us. He will not fall into sin, and he will not fail us. The Bible says that God cannot be tempted with evil, according to James 1 and 13. So this means that none of the three who make up the eternal Godhead can be tempted with evil. Those who believe that Jesus could have sinned, they fail to understand who he is, what he came to do, and the power of his sinless life. He was the seed of God. And the Bible said in 1 John chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, and chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, and verses 17 and 18, that as long as the seed of God remains in him, he cannot sin. Okay, for the record, Jesus will be the seed of God forever, so he never will sin. Amen. Salvation is accomplished through the call of the Father, through the incarnation, life, death, resurrection of the Son, and the drawing of the Holy Ghost. Scripture bears witness to the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost initiating, accomplishing, and applying salvation for lost humanity. Paul's claim that all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God in 2 Timothy 3 and 16, it really says more about the Holy Ghost than most people perceive. The term given by inspiration is literally interpreted as breathe out. This is certainly a spirit-related meaning since pneuma is the Greek word that is used for spirit and for breath. So it means it's spirit-breathed. The author of Hebrews identifies the Father as the one who prior to the incarnation spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days has spoken to us by his Son, according to Hebrews 1 and 1 and 2. We hear the voice of the Son through the wooing of the Holy Ghost. What makes the idea of the Trinity confusing to some is that they wrongly see a pecking order. That's true, and a lot of people do this. We find it nearly impossible to see the Trinity as co-equal in all things and still be referred to in an order, such as Father, Son, Holy Ghost. We see numbers, number one, number two, number three, and we assume number one is the strongest and most dominant, followed by number two, who is less than number one, but a little better than number three. This is wrong. When we see numerical order, we assume it's also an authoritative order, but all three of these members are God. Is there any way to explain how this could work? Well, let me give you just a small example. It's not a perfect example, but I believe it's a good example. My wife and I are united together in marriage. The Bible tells us that two flesh have become one. If I were to pass away, that binding and unity in our marriage would cease to exist. Even though my wife would still be alive and well, the marriage unity and our oneness would cease to be any longer. But right now, 
while both of us live, God sees the two of us as one flesh consisting of two completely separate people. If one of the Trinity were to cease to exist, God would be no more. There's only one God who consists of three completely separate persons in the Godhead. The greatest proof of there being three in the Trinity is that all three persons in the Godhead have the divine title of God given to them at different times. Exodus 20, verse 2, John 20, verse 28, Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. Each one of these members is called eternal in Scripture. Romans 16 and 26, Revelation 22 and 13, Hebrews 9 and 14. All are referred to as holy. Revelation 15 and 4, Acts 3 and 14, 1 John 2 and 20. The act of creation is attributed to each one. Genesis 1 and 1, Colossians 1 and 16, Job 33 and 4, John 1 and 3, Job 26 and 13. The designation of teacher is shared by all three. Isaiah 54, 13, John 14, 26, Galatians 1 and 12. Who really rose Christ from the dead? According to the Bible, it was all three. 1 Corinthians 6 and 14, John 2 and 19, 1 Peter 3 and 18. Who supplies the church with ministers? All three members of the Godhead, Jeremiah 3 and 15, Ephesians 4 and 11, Acts 20 and 28, Matthew 10 and 5, Acts 13 and 2. If you need more proof, there's also verses that say all three members of the Godhead are omniscient, all three members are omnipresent. All three members are omnipotent. All three members are true or the truth. All three members are our sanctifier, and all three members are our source of life and eternal life. If you have ever struggled with the concept of the Trinity, or whether there are three or just one, or if you have been confused about it, please take the time to look these verses up and read them. I highly encourage you to read them. But while we're here, we need to talk about the other belief systems that are in error because we've described what the right belief system is, and we touched on a little bit on the oneness doctrine. But I want to point out a couple of other beliefs that go along with the oneness doctrine. Docetism is a belief that came from viewing the deity of Christ, and it proclaims that Jesus only appeared to be human, and he only appeared to die on the cross. Denying Jesus' humanity takes away from who he was and what he came to do. Yes. Arianism is a belief that teaches Jesus was only a man. Arianism denies his deity and teaches that Jesus is a created being. Denying Jesus' deity creates many major false doctrines. Yeah, and it also begs the question of why should anyone worship Jesus if he's simply another man? If he's created like we are and he's only a man like us, how is he worthy of worship? If Jesus is not God, then we commit idolatry every time we praise and worship him. Only God is to be worshipped. Jesus never rejected anyone's worship, and he also forgave sins, which only God can do. The oneness people, as we talked about earlier, believe in what's called modalism. They believe that only Jesus truly exists. He can only manifest as one person at one time. They believe that when Jesus takes on the form of God, there is no Jesus the Son, or the Holy Ghost. If he takes on the form of the Holy Ghost, then there's no Jesus the Son or God the Father at that exact moment. So this is how the one group came to be known as oneness, only one at a time. That's right. They believe that when Jesus was on the earth, heaven was empty. I've heard them proclaim that when Jesus was dying on the cross, the heavens were emptied of all their glory. If that were so, who or what stopped Satan from taking over? That's a good point. When Jesus died and was in the tomb, wouldn't that have put everything in heaven and earth and hell in chaos? Mm -hmm. Now, the Oneness Church teaches that we believe in tritheism. What is that? 
Well, tritheism teaches that there's three gods instead of just one God. We believe there's three persons that make up one God, not three gods. That's right. By definition, we use the word Trinity, and it describes the three-in-one problem pretty adequately. It's a blending of two words, tri, meaning three, and unity, meaning one. The Trinity, Godhead, triunity, is the belief that there's three distinct persons that make up the one true God. Let me share a couple of scriptures with you. First John chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are going out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. Every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. I want to point out one more thing. 99% of the time when you run into a oneness person in town, they're going to ask you one question in particular. They're not going to ask you, oh, do y'all believe in wearing long sleeves? So how do y'all believe in sanctification? They're going to ask you one particular question. How do you baptize? It all refers to baptism to them. All they want to know is, do you baptize in Jesus' name or do you baptize wrongly? They say which would be in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Next thing that I want to point out about the oneness people is that they believe that you don't get saved until you speak with tongues. They don't get to the altar and confess their sins altogether trying to get saved, and then a little bit later they try to pray through and get sanctified, and a little later they try to pray through and find the Holy Ghost. If they don't speak in tongues, they don't believe they're saved. And so it's Holy Ghost or nothing. If you ever heard that term, that's a oneness term. A lot of holiness people are leaning more towards that today than has ever been at any other time in history. It's all about we got to speak in tongues. Now, I am not opposed to speaking in tongues. I believe in it. I believe if you're saved and you're born again, you're living a holy, sanctified life, you're eligible to have the Holy Ghost baptism. And when he comes, the evidence is you will speak in tongues, but you don't have to speak in tongues to get saved. And that's one of the doctrines of the oneness people that is so wrong. What would you like to leave our audience with today? Well, first, I'm sure that some people might have been hoping for a more in-depth treatment on the errors of the oneness movement. And we're going to be doing a whole episode on that belief system sometime later this year. I don't know when. It may be November. And I know that sounds like a long time off, but we've got a lot of other things that we're needing to cover as well. But in closing, I want to point out that people are searching for wisdom in this life. This is why the oneness people do what they do. This is why the Baptist people do what they do. This is why the holiness people, the Trinity people, do what they do. So when you're seeking for wisdom in life, it'll lead you in a couple directions. The Greeks sought wisdom through philosophy. You know why? Because they believe that philosophy is comprised of two things. One, philosophy is the search for wisdom. Two, philosophy is the search for unity and diversity. This is where we get our academies and colleges. They receive their name, universities. University literally means unity in diversity. Weren't all universities originally founded to teach people about God and his ways? They most absolutely were. In order to bring all things together with meaning, it's believed that we must find unity in the midst of diversity. Even the motto that's on our money today, E Pluribus Unum, that's Latin for out of many one. It could have been said this way, out of diversity 
unity. The only place that you're going to find perfect unity in diversity will be found in the community of the Trinity. Amen. Good teaching, brother. Friends, remember, if you have a Bible question or a question regarding how news or current events or things going on in our culture today are connected to Scripture, drop us an email at dkministries1977 at yahoo.com. That's dkministries1977 at yahoo.com. We hope you've enjoyed this episode today, sharing God's Word. But until next time, may God bless you all. Be sure and come back Monday, February the 6th for episode number 102, A Beast, The Ark, and A Celebration, Revelation 11 and 5 through 19. Now for heaven I want to go, I want to go, I want to go to that land where the milk and honey flow. Oh, I've heard of such a place. I can't go there by God's grace. Never seen it, but I know I want to go.